Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Hi, it's Lainey from the Library Love Fest marketing team. In May, romance author Sarah McLean came to the office to discuss her new book, Wicked and the Wallflower, on a Facebook Live. She was interviewed by Stephanie Anderson, the assistant director of selection for book ops, serving the branches of the New York Public Library and Brooklyn Public Library, and a friend of Sarah's. Here's the audio from that recording, and if you're looking for the original video, you can go to our website, librarylovefest.com, and click the video archive tile. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. We're here with author Sarah McLean, author of Wicked and the Wallflower. And we're here for an interview, and she's going to be interviewed by Stephanie Anderson, a librarian. And we're so excited to have you guys here. So throughout, you can just give us some questions through the comments, and I'll interject. But I'm going to let Stephanie take it away. Great. Thank you. Hey, Sarah. Hi. What's up? Thank you for coming. Oh, my gosh. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to Harper for having me. I am so excited to talk to you in front of a lot of people. I feel like (laughs) every time we talk, not in front of a lot of people. Um, We have very interesting conversations. We do. So over the place. So Sarah and I have known each other, we were just thinking maybe eight or nine years. Yeah. Ever since Nine Rules to Break When Romancing a Rake came out. And now we're up to, like, what, eight books? Nine? Twelve books. Twelve books? Well, I'm a librarian. I'm not very good at numbers. Um, (laughs) And I just got to read, I will say as a sneak peek, uh, Wicked in the Wallflower before this interview, and it's excellent for everyone out there. Pre-order it. That's very kind. And it's very spicy, very funny. I I try. I try to be spicy and funny in life and in text. So let's dive right into it. What made you write this this particular story to sort of Um, sway into, I would say, almost a little bit of a darker yeah um well it's my fourth series it's my fourth series Mm -hmm. um and all the series are interconnected in a sort of loose way Mm -hmm. um and you'll see in this book similar characters will sort of wander by who you'll be familiar with um but to be totally honest i got a little i i was getting a little tired of writing kind of big ballroom scenes Mm. and um, heroes who were titled but didn't have very much to do. And um, I wanted to write sort of the other side. And I had danced around that for a while in some other series. So in um, the Rules of Scoundrel series, which is a casino series, I sort of wrote all these titled dudes who um, owned a casino together, and I got to write that sort of gambling, sort of sinful space, but it was still very, um, it was sort of very closed off and private from the rest of the the sort of rarefied world that the women all, that the heroines all lived in and that the, the world where they existed outside of the club. Um, this is different. This is set in Covent Garden mm-hmm. um, in the 1840s. Um, it is, the heroes are, um, the heroes of the series are the bare knuckle bastards. Mm-hmm. They are smugglers. 
Um, they are kings of Covent Garden, um, which at the time was not near as posh as it is now. It's quite nice now. Oh, it's no. beautiful now. But back then it had a reputation. No, back then it had a reputation. It was pretty nefarious. Like there was a lot of crime there. There was a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of poverty there. There were, it, it had a lot of the things that exist in cities. Yeah. Um, and I got really excited about writing about these sort of princes of this world that I had never explored and that is rare to see in romance. It's not unheard of, but yeah. it's rare. No, it's unusual. Um, and I think, and you sort of kick it right off in a very, very subtle way by naming your hero Devil. <laughs> in case anybody was wondering. Right. The heroes are there Devil and Beast. Yeah. Yes. Which is kind of great. I, yeah. I mean, I like it. Okay. I feel like everyone needs a devil. Like, I feel yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lisa Kleypas had, you know, has one of the most famous devil books. Yep. Um, Stephanie Lawrence has a very famous devil book. Um, and I'm sort of ready to, to maybe write my devil. Did you have to do, because I know you've done a lot of research over the years working on these books, did you do more research specifically into Covent Garden to write about this? Or did, did anything inspire you that made it into I mean, the book? Covent Garden is amazing. Yeah. Um, Seven Dials, which is, you know, right there in Covent Garden. If you've, if you've never been to London, you should Google Seven Dials, it's very cool, like, street where seven, it's a, it's a circle in the midst of Covent Garden where seven streets come into a little tiny roundabout. It's very, very small space. Um, those of you who read Elizabeth Hoyt know a lot about Seven Dials, mm -hmm. probably. Um, but when I get to London, when I'm in London, and I try to go at least once a year, usually twice a year, um, Covent Garden is one of my favorite places because it has such character. The Covent Garden market is really great. Um, and... I met a guy there, um, an older man whose grandfather sold ice in Covent Garden, um, like lemon ices mm -hmm. and raspberry ices, um, and he would bring, he would buy the block of ice like on the docks and drag it up to Covent Garden and sell ice in the marketplace. Um, you know, this was his grandfather so a hundred years ago, and I got really interested in ice. <laughs> <laughs> Which my husband would Very tell you. Very romantic, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also have a four-and-a-half-year-old, so my husband uh. is pretty sure this is related to Frozen, which I'm not going <laughs> to deny. I mean, I was watching a whole lot of Frozen. Wow. Um, or rather, someone in my house was watching a whole lot of Frozen and, you know, pretending she had ice powers a lot. So ice became sort of... I've never seen Frozen. It's... You'll surely someday I've, see it. I've done and, a good job of avoiding it. Yeah. It's, it's, have you replicated the story in this book? <laughs> is, this, is this a frozen homage? It's homage to frozen. No, but what's interesting about it is that uh, when you start thinking about ice mm -hmm. in the world, sure. and I mean, I don't want to get you guys all hot and bothered thinking about refrigeration. That's a big deal, <laughs> yeah. But refrigeration is a big deal. Yeah. And, um, you know, before we had things like freezers, you had to get ice from somewhere, and so we would ship it, we... We, all of us, really. <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. Um, in London, they would ship it in from uh, Scandinavian countries on ships. Hmm. In you know, they would fill these huge cargo ships with hundreds of tons of ice, but it would melt, obviously, because right. ice melts. Um, and so they would come in up the Thames at high tide, and the the ships oh. would almost be sinking from the weight of the water of the ice melt. Um, inside, and so I had this idea that was sort of well, they couldn't get on. Nobody could get onto the ships to see what was in, on there because right. they were literally too heavy. too heavy and also full of water. Um, so wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't that be a cool way to smuggle? That stuff? would be a great way to smuggle stuff. Yeah, too bad well, you can't do it anymore. But yeah, it's true. Yes, there's not a lot of mice smuggling anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't think, but there could be. 
Yes. We're getting a lot of love. Just a reminder, guys, to post comments and questions so that we can ask Stephanie. Everyone loves ice. Um, people people love, are like, they love reading about ice and books. They love ice. Um, people Very are, Diana saying. You're taking a totally different turn as a writer. <laughs> no. Diana saying, all time favorite author. Yay. Oh, yeah. thanks, yeah. Diana. That's so yes. nice. Be sure to post That's questions. So nice. Um, but also, ice is very sexy. It is, which yes. is helpful. It's true when you're writing romance novels. And then you have to put it in like not. I'm trying very hard not to spoil anything. Uh, you have to put it in very dark places, right? It has to be held underground, very hidden, and right. Yeah, it's like, worth saying lots of corners, lots of corners, <laughs> lots, lots of, of corners. places you can hide. <laughs> your it's ice. true. It's true. Um, the whole book is set, with the exception of one scene, the, the book is set at night. It's mm-hmm. the first book I've ever written. You know what? It didn't even occur to me until just Entirely now. set at night. Maybe that's why I said it felt dark. Because it, it is I mean, literally it dark. It is literally dark. I mean, there's a lot of suspense in it, which I liked. I think it has like a real romantic suspense element to it, where I was just like, oh no, oh no. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, it's literally dark. Dark. It's literally dark. Wow. It's, I hard, was like, to, it's hard to I see. I was like thinking through the plot, like, maybe she's wrong. Like, why would you be wrong? It's your book. <laughs> Obviously, it's all set at night. There's one scene not set at night, and it's actually set at dusk. And that's it. Wow. And was that a deliberate choice? Did you write some daytime scenes and take them out, or how do you No, I just, that I knew I wanted to write beginning. a book. Yeah. At dark. In in the dark. Mm-hmm. And, and use light as a, as yeah. a, whenever there is light, it's important. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of, I think what makes it feel so sensual, too, is that all the other senses become such a big deal. The smells and the sure. what people hear, and well, it really brings a different element of the story to life, which is great. Yeah. yeah. And the whole book is really about unlocking things and mm-hmm. seeing yeah. things for, seeing things in different ways and um, the sort of, the secrets that we keep and that we, the way that we share mm-hmm. them and the way that we find them. Mm-hmm. And light is a piece of that, right? Like, yeah. So when you started writing romance novels, yes, um, a long time ago, a long like, <laughs> I guess was it ten years? It was ten years. I mean, Is that I when you started? How long did book? it take you to write and practice before you sold the first I book? I don't remember what month I sold my first book, but I sold my first book it has to have been early two thousand eight. Wow! Least. So oh. I'm I'm ten years. Ten years. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So did you think that at this point you would have written all these stories, been like trying to start pushing, you get almost, you know, the way I see your career sometimes is like Sarah got very good and very comfortable with the rules and the tropes of Regency romance and then was like, hmm, I wonder what I could do with these. <laughs> well, uh, I wonder kind. how I could start pushing them a little bit. Um, was that always something you were thinking when you started writing? Like, I'd like to see what I can do with this or did it come from being a fan and wanting to try your hand at writing? Or I mean, I think, Partially, it's that. Partially, it's um, I'm a I'm a reader first. Yeah, and I've been a romance reader for you know since I could read, since I could read chapter books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it feels to me like I had read. I mean, I cut my teeth in the in the eighties and nineties and early nineties on you know the the women who held up Regency. You know, Jude Devereaux and Judith McNaught and Julie Garwood and. Um, and then as, and so, and so I've been reading, you know, I read Julia Quinn when, and Amanda Quick and all mm-hmm. of the sort of big, big Regency names, um, throughout. And then when I started writing, it sort of was natural for me to iterate on those stories, mm-hmm. um, which I think is true of many of us when yeah, we start. Yeah. Um, and Nine Rules to Break When Romancing Rake, which is my first romance novel, um, is a Wallflower Rake's rake book Mm -hmm. which this one is too Mm -hmm. um i'm back going back to my roots Mm -hmm. um but for sure 
sure as I read and now that I read so many romance novels right. for a job too yeah. it's pretty great to be able to really uh, romance has become such a massive genre not that it mm -hmm. wasn't before but yeah, now yeah, it's yeah. so big it's and so broad and people are doing such cool things with it mm -hmm. that I feel like it's a constant come my books when I write I often feel like I'm having a conversation with other books that I've loved yeah um, and sort of thinking about how I can how I can be inspired by those books and how I can twist them and mm -hmm. think in other... I feel like the whole genre is just constantly iterating on itself. Do you think being a reviewer, and for those who don't know, Sarah reviews for the Washington Post, um, you write a monthly column, yes. right? And, all, and not just Regencies, but all different kinds of sure. genres, subgenres, all kinds of romance. All romance, though. Right. Uh, very important. Um, do you think reviewing has changed your own writing? Has it changed you as a reader? I don't think reviewing has so much as the world in general has mm. changed the way that I read and mm -hmm. the way I write. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the column, what I love about the column uh, for the post is that the job description it was very clearly put to me as choose your three favorite books of the month. Right. So I just get to read the way I've always read <laughs> right, yeah. and then say, oh my gosh, read these three. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and what's interesting is that every month I can, uh, what I find is that there's always, that the, where it used to sort of be at the beginning of the column that I would choose, you know, three books that were just delightful confections. Now I'm sort of thinking about how romance can impact the yeah. reader. And, and I've always felt that it could, but now I feel like because I'm reviewing them, I'm able to say, well, this is a beautiful, it's a beautifully written book, yes, but it's also important in the world. Yeah, I've noticed, so I also review romance novels for Kirkus, and I have noticed over the years um, a real marked trend, and I mostly review historical, towards, you know, the heroes not just being very good looking and, and smart and whatever else that the heroes are, but also having some other kind of feature, whether it's like a real awareness about social justice issues mm -hmm. in a way that I frankly can't quite believe was that present <laughs> in the Regency or Georgian eras, well, but I am, I'm willing Sheldon to grant. Fiction, I'm willing to so. grant. Yes, I, it's, it's, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. Um, or you have somebody, there's a lot more uh, books that are sort of deliberately crafting heroes and heroines that have some kind of, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it without forcing the authors to do something maybe they're not doing. Say, oh, look, this uh, this is a character who maybe has OCD, sure. or this character is suffering from PTSD, or something that wouldn't have been recognized at that time, right. but trying to say there's lots of different ways to find love, there's lots of different... Um, and that seems to be, not that it wasn't done before, certainly it was, but it seems to be a huge trend, I'd say in the last two to three years in particular, almost to the point that I've wondered if it shows that what we think of as heroic has changed. That like it's not enough just to be good looking and rich anymore. You also have to be this fundamentally good person, um, which seems like it puts romance novelists in a bit of a corner. Uh, do you feel that way or have you seen that trend yourself as a reader? I think that the thing about romance in general is that, and I, I talk about, we've had this conversation a mm -hmm. lot, but my, um, <clears throat> when you think about romance as a, fairly young genre. Mm -hmm. um, it's the first romance novel when we talk about romances was published in 1972, right? We're talking about The Flame and the Flower by right. Kathleen Woodowitz. Which, which holds up surprisingly well. Really, really well. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, although it does represent a lot of the things that we... Mm -hmm struggle with as a genre the there are the, the hero rapes the heroine multiple times in the first hundred pages mm -hmm. there's a there's a lot about this book it's it has a 
has a lot of problems, yes. but it the, as a as a archetype for um, an adventure novel with a woman at the center, which is essentially the story of every romance novel, mm-hmm. you know, it's it stands. Um, but from that moment. 1972 was a, a sort of very powerful watershed moment for the women's movement. Mm-hmm. And then as we move forward in romance, what we start to see is romance reflecting, constantly sort of mirroring society and, and reflecting back on society. And I mm-hmm. think part of the reason why it's able to do that is because, one, romance writers write really fast. Right. Um, and even now they write insanely Super fast. fast yes. But, even then, they wrote, you know, a book a year or a book every 18 months. Like, that's a quick turnaround um, for a writer. So there is a constant dialogue with, with society, but also because it's the story of women, mm-hmm. right? And it's the only genre, mm-hmm. yep. really, at it all, is. that it is. Um, centers women and centers women in uh, triumph. Yep. And so when we see that, of course, it's a conversation with society. Right. So I don't necessarily think that, as you said, I don't think it's new that we're, that we're struggling with or that we're, we're saying things in the books. Um, and you can see that certainly in the 70s, we saw a lot of, we, we, saw, we see a lot of reflection in those books to the women's movement. In the 80s, we see the working woman sort of rise in mm-hmm. romance novels and mm-hmm. single title contemporaries become a thing. Um, in the 90s, we see sort of the rise of the beta hero because... Mm-hmm. Economically, we were okay. Things were pretty settled. The Cold War was over. And then um, in 2001, 9-11 happened, and then we see the rise of paranormal and this kind of idea of needing heroes who could tackle a big bad that no one else could tackle. We could we could literally save the world with these heroes and heroines. Mm-hmm. And then in, we had a massive recession in the late aughts, and billionaires came to be. Right. And now here we are in a very real time. Yes. Um, and the books are changing. I think you're absolutely right. And the question is, what are they trying to say? Yeah, what do you think? But I so, think you're hitting on it. It's, I think Regency It is the evolution of the hero. Like, Regency's kind of had a, from, you know, so I came to romances as an adult. So I've had to kind of go back and read all sure. of the older romances to understand the context. And it seems like Regency's maybe five years ago or so, probably actually around the time you were writing, there was like a huge explosion of new Regency writers, all writing very, what I if you recall, a steamy romance or a spicy romance, mm-hmm. lots of sex on the page, <laughs> lots of very overtly feminist heroines. Sure. Um, where, what do you think that tells us? Especially about the, like, if that started five to ten years ago, what does that tell us? Now sure. A well, hindsight on I mean, sexual agency, obviously. I mean, yeah. the better, the more sort of the more agent, sexual agency a heroine takes on the page, the better for me because I feel like it's an important piece of what the dialogue that we're having now culturally is mm-hmm. very much about that. Yep. Um, more and more, I mean, literally today on the subway I was reading Twitter and just, you know, going into a rage and I feel like I feel like romance heroines are, are fighting that battle for us on yep. the page, which yep. is one thing. But I actually think that what we're seeing is less of an evolution of the heroine because mm. she's always been from that moment in Flame in the Flower when Heather like puts herself on a ship mm-hmm. and sails across the um, or runs away from her abusive uncle. Um, she the heroine has always taken agency, had agency. She's always taken initiative. The heroine is always proactive in a romance novel, in a, in a great romance novel. These are that's sort of an expected thing. But I think that what's really interesting is what we're seeing is a change in the hero, like yeah. you said. Um, and we're seeing heroes become more feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing heroes who ha- are, have richer lives mm-hmm. and have richer, have more nuanced ideas. In those early years, heroes were blank slates. Mm-hmm. Um, 
even as far back as, you know, in 2010 with Fifty Shades of Grey, like Christian Grey, it's written in the first person, right? So in first person novels, heroes are kind of blank slates. And so it's it's a tricky thing for a writer who writes first person heroines Mm -hmm. to show a nuanced hero. And so what we're starting to see across the board is... Um, really great writing, I think, yeah, because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're starting to see hero writers sort of tackle this idea of how a hero can be evolved, mm-hmm. um, this kind of alpha feminist idea, yeah. which I think is the it's the goal in every in in many many romances over the over the last fifty years. We've seen the evolution of a hero from sort of. Neanderthal to feminist. Yeah. Um, I don't know if those are the two ends, but sometimes no, it, feels, it feels, feels that way to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, because what we're looking at is partnership, right? We're, right. we're looking at um, uh, equal partnership. We're looking at uh, a, a desire for your partner to have satisfaction, or a desire for your partner to triumph, or a, a, um, a desire to lift up mm-hmm. the goals and, and thoughts of your partner. And this feels very feminist to me when it comes yeah. in the mouth of, you know, a brusque medieval knight um and that's been there all the time but now i think we're seeing it over and over again really overtly and i love it yeah no it's great i always think about um that parks and rec when i think it's when do you watch parks yeah and men's rec? rights is when, nothing no yeah that's right <laughs> well yes uh that he proposes to her and at one point i can't remember if it's that scene or one scene but he says they say i love you and i like you I actually think it's yeah. the wedding scene yeah, i love yeah. you and i like you and it's something that i've always thought is just like the sweetest thing and it seems to me like romance went from being like i love you and i want you and and now, when you sort of get to the I climactic like scene, it's like, I love you and I like you. Like, they're always like, you're beautiful and you're smart and you love people and this thing and yeah. this thing. And you tame wild wolves. Exactly. <laughs> and you're nice to my sister yeah. and this thing. And there's something, I think it's very cool, mm-hmm. but it's been interesting to see. And so this ties to another trend, um, which again, I this is how it looks to me. I'll be curious how sure. it looks to you. Um, so I've lived in New York for about 10 years and in that, managed a bookstore. Now I'm in a library. Um, and in that time, I have seen both online and in person romance go from something people did not really talk about as readers. So I've been, and I've been working with readers for like 15 years in various jobs, to being something that more and more women, especially I would say of my generation, are willing to very overtly like go in and ask for books, mm-hmm. um, to talk about online, to like, you know, I certainly, when people talk about romance in a library context, I'm always like, well, I read romance. Like, why are you going to? So there's still a lot of these biases out there, and I don't want to waste any of our time rehashing those. Everyone knows what they are. But I've noticed, um, and part of this is, like, I think there's great online conversations. There's so many great websites, or even just on Twitter and Instagram, there's this real community um, that is not just reading romance, but proud of it and actively discussing Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I know you have your own communities that you work with. Do you think um, that more readers are coming to romance sort of as a result of these evolutions we're talking about? Or do you think these evolutions are part of what's causing readers to talk about romance differently? Like, it's more of a chicken and egg thing, it's but I'm wondering if you've seen thing, the same yeah. thing or can um, speak to it. Because obviously I live in New York, so I'm seeing one set of readers. There's sure, readers of romance sure. Everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there, without question over the last four or five years, we've started to really see a lot of respect for the genre mm-hmm. publicly in um, not only, you know, the media, national publications, but also kind of in the in the literary world, mm-hmm. we're being invited to, to things like, 
you know, book festivals, sure. which we've never been welcome at before. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, you know, there are, there are courses being taught on romance in more places than, you know, Bowling Green State University, which was the one of the few places that actually paid attention to romance. Um, and I think, so I, I do think that there's that. I also think that, again, it's, it's the conversation about um, women in the world. Um, mm-hmm. It's the fact that we're becoming more and more aware of media by and about women, media that centers women, media that centers the female gaze, media that puts um, women and all marginalized people in triumph and mm-hmm. represents them. in Because there's nothing more triumphant than Happily Ever After, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I don't just mean that in a romantic, sexual love kind of way. I mean, like, at the end of a book, part of the Happily Ever After is that the reader, the covenant that I have, I as a writer have with my reader is that when you close the book at the end, there is no doubt that these two people will be happy, right. and they will have and and whatever that of means course, to them. happy together in right. in my world, but also just satisfied and and there's no doubt that they they might fail. Right, um, triumph is the greatest mm-hmm. sort of way to stick it to your enemy. Yeah, it's true um, to be happy, and so I think. Uh, it's very it's about the it's about you know third wave feminism and and the arc of the the arc of the women's movement is the arc of the romance novel and so maybe that's why we're having such positive um responses but certainly i mean we still fight the battles oh yeah it's many a drunken bar argument for me yes (laughs) yes. exactly don't Um, judge a book by its cover is a constant litany i mean it's a people really do judge them. We have some great comments. Thank okay. you for participation in furthering the genre. What a phenomenal conversation. One question is what did you think of the royal wedding and the rise of alpha feminism? <gasps> what, what's Yay! that? What is alpha feminism? Alpha feminism. Um, Usually oh, I, when I don't know something, I could just look it up. Well, this is killer. As a librarian, <laughs> this is like very painful. I, I have mean, like reference questions. I don't know if they're referring yeah. to the alpha feminist idea that I just sort of brought up. But I think so. Yeah. I think they yeah. were yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to take the first part of that question first because, oh my God, the royal wedding was That's amazing. Great. It was amazing. That's great. Um, I watched it with my four and a half year old and who is like my little barometer of like, what is, what, what is it? Because I mean, she's my science project, right? I'm raising <laughs> a woman in the world. And so, and she, you know, dressed up. She knew she had to like, she was yeah, ready. She, be ready. she put on a veil, which was a piece of lace that I had from a grandmother somewhere, you know, she, she was ready. She was wearing a tiara. And, um, yesterday we were in the car and she, and she was riveted. Like my child sat through that entire mass and said not a word. She was riveted to it. Um, and then we were in the car yesterday and she said to me, um, and I, we were talking about something and, oh, she asked me what I was doing and while she was at school and I said, oh, I was writing, I was writing. And she, and she said, mommy, what, what's your book about? And I, and I realized I'd never told her that I, um, what my books are about. And I said, well, I, I write books about love. Did you know that? And she was like, I didn't, but maybe you could write a book about marriage, about getting married. And I was like, well, maybe I could. Yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, like Princess Meghan. <laughs> I was Aww. like, if Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, I know she's not a princess, yes. but if you marry a prince, wear a tiara, and live in a castle, I mean, you're a princess. Yes. So I'm fine with that. Um, and uh, I just feel like if Meghan Markle is our my daughter's idea of what a princess is, mm-hmm. we're okay. Mm-hmm. Like, she's going to be fine. Um, I loved the royal wedding. I loved every minute of it. Of course I did. It's so on brand. 
Yeah, no, it was. I actually was surprised. I knew I was going to watch it. Like, yeah, it's funny because I I feel like if I were British, I would hate the royal family, just knowing my own political sure. leanings. But then, like as an American, I'm very charmed by sure. all of it, and it's I like I like gossip, so like I like all that too. But um, I accidentally didn't wake up to watch it live, so then I like had to go online, and the New York Times had all of it, and I and I happened to open it up to like just a they were looking at the castle and like some cars were driving up to it and I just burst into tears and my husband was like what's wrong with you I was like I don't know I don't know there's just so much emotion <laughs> around so, it and he very was very cathartic so, for it's everybody it's so obvious yes. that they care for each other too it's a I'm glad you feel that way because I was like am I just talking no, myself into how when I they look, look at, so happy no and when you look at pictures of like Prince Charles and Diana like they like she mm-hmm. was so miserable and there's nothing I feel like I mean, now this is going to be like Royal Wedding podcast, I mean, yeah. Royal Wedding Facebook Live, but <laughs> I feel like um, Kate and William, too, like they have such care for each other. And yeah. I'm fascinated by how they have to interact in public versus how Harry and Meghan have to interact in public. Like, yeah. there's so much air and sparing going on that I, I just adore as a romance reader slash writer. I explain that to Trevor. Where he was like, why is he getting away with so much? And I was like, well, he's the spare. Yeah, no one cares he's anymore. Like, he's like, like sixth what? in line. Nothing's yeah, going to happen. Can, exactly. Like, he's ev- never going to touch it's sad the crown. Like, everyone he loves would have to die for him to be the king. Right. He's not. Exactly. He doesn't want to do it anyway. So. Exactly. It's very interesting. I, you know, I have, uh, you know, Anne Helen Peterson, who yeah. writes a lot about celebrity gossip. I thought about that a lot, where, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with her, she talks about, um, I believe she has a PhD in this, which is very impressive. Um, if you'd known you could get a PhD in that, I wouldn't know. you have done that? I would have. No, I'm pretty good with my <laughs> life, but, um, but that's a close second. And she talks a lot about and writes a lot about how one of the really valuable things about gossip is it's how we as a society share norms with one another. Sure. And like what we approve of and what we don't approve of. And so she likes to look at history to say, you know, this was considered scandalous at the time. And it really tells us. And I think romances actually fill a really similar role. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting. The one bad part of the wedding for me was that just in search of pictures, it's like, I have to see all the pictures. Mm-hmm. I read a Daily Mail. Oh, never yeah. did that. And then I read Mistake. the comments just out of no. sheer cussedness. I don't know what made me do it. And I, you know, it was just after all this happiness and I, you know, I personally do not know anyone who actively hated the wedding you know people who were disinterested in it yeah um and then to see how angry people were because there was a part of me i guess that felt like boy people are really overplaying the importance of this you know it's a wedding good for them i wish someone else had planned my wedding too i probably would have like loved that but then to see how furious people were and it was so obviously like a lot of the comments were so they weren't even veiled racism oh sure your racism is showing racism and outright just uh, you know I don't know, just every reason under the sun to not be happy for people. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... And, like, not only would you have those feelings, but then you would share them in public and, like, go out of your way to type them up so other people could see them. Uh-huh. I was really flabbergasted. But, so then I no. closed it and I went back to watching the video. Exactly. Which, really nice. which, is, yeah. which is better. But And also I just feel like the whole, oh, first of all, two things. One, it's something like a $2 billion um, injection into the British economy. So it's oh, wow. not... Yeah. It's... Let's be clear, like, this is not a bad thing for England. No, no. And two, I had this moment, I had this very real moment that it was, like, the first time I'd had, and this is going to sound so cheesy, you guys, but, like, I had real joy watching it. Mm -hmm. Like, pure, unadulterated joy that this was happening in the world in front of billions of viewers and 
it was so wonderful compared to so much of what's happened in front of billions of viewers over mm -hmm. the last couple of years. Yeah. Like, I was, I had real pure joy for the future watching it, mm -hmm. which maybe is crazy. I don't know, but I did. No, I think that's crazy. Don't yuck my yum, Facebook. Yeah. I think it's nice. <laughs> Speaking of women in the media, um, the question I have is, what do you think of the candidate for Governor Stacey Abrams and her oh. work? She's a romance novelist! She what? She whoa, was. whoa, whoa! Like, I was she already was. super into her, In and fact, now I'm she like... wrote for Avon. No. And now her pen name is gone from my head, but someone will tell you in comments what oh, her pen name is. Oh, my God. And That's isn't that amazing? Amazing. And she doesn't hide from it. She's like, oh, that was her life before I love this. Her even more. That's I amazing. mean, I give her all my money. Yeah. That's I mean, marvelous. and also, I mean, on top of it, she's highly qualified. Sure, sure, sure. She's incredible. No, no. I actually think you know what? I think more but romance novelists should run for office. Let the romance novelists lead the way. I, is what I have frankly, to say about I that. I feel very good about that. Like, it <laughs> yeah. is not easy to write a book. Selena yeah. Montgomery. Yes, yeah. Selena <laughs> Montgomery. Thank you, thank you, whoever that was. Um, I, I am all for more romance novels running for elected office. Yeah. You ought to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I live in New York City, so yeah. you need people, you know, outside of New York being... Well, I don't right know. I feel this. like New York City could use a couple more romance yeah. novelists on City Council, but um, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. It's certainly not something I would talk about too deeply as a public employee. Um, so I want to get back to the fact that you re read a lot of romance and ask, how do you find time to write so many romance novels? Because I know a lot of people who read romance <laughs> write, and they read, and like, you know, romance novels are quick reads, generally, mm -hmm. but they're still, they're usually long, like 400 pages or whatever. How do you sort of balance all these different ways? Your whole life is romance in many ways, so how do you... Isn't how that you, the best? Yeah, that's great. That's great. You probably are the only person I feel like has a better job than I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that that's true, because I just wish, I wish I could be a librarian just so that I could make people read romance novels all it's the time. It's pretty it's pretty great. Yeah, that's that is one thing and I have to say too for all the librarians out there, um my favorite tip for you know I did a webinar recently about readers advisory for all sorts of genres and for romance is most people won't ask librarians. Mm -hmm. They won't say like give me a romance novel. They'll just say like I'm going on vacation, um, which not everyone wants to read romance yeah. on vacation, but when you say to people like, oh, would you be interested in a romance novel? If they are a romance reader, that to me is one of the purest joys. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people don't talk to librarians about romance because they're nervous They're nervous, about or like a romance, uh, not, a librarian has been very mean to them in the past. Sure. You can often in a lot of libraries tell how they feel about romances by where they are or what condition they're in. Um, or whether they have the new books by popular authors, and just that look on people's faces where it's like, I can, this librarian reads romance She's too? unlocked it for yeah. me. Yeah, and then it's like, -da -da -da. and then so many, I can't tell you how many readers too have been like, no, you know, I've never tried one. And so then to be able to walk them over, if they're interested, be like, well, why don't you take one with everything else? See if it works maybe you'll for like you, it. maybe it's you'll like library. it. It's a library, it's no, maybe you like it, maybe you won't. And yeah. people, you know, it's, and I'll, more times, you know, you always say to people when you do reader's advisory, well, if you don't like it, come back. If you do like it, come back. Like, I just want, it doesn't matter. It's up to you, but I just want to keep talking to you about this. And I would say romances were more likely to make people actually come back and seek me out than a lot of other types yeah. of books. Well, largely that's because it's such a huge genre. Yeah. It's hard to navigate when you're a new reader. Yeah. As it, there's a, it's very hard to find an entry point. Yep. And then once you even find that first book, it's so massive. It's hard yeah. to... It's you were actually hard. the one who gave me my first list of romance novels to read. Yeah, I know. And I don't. I think that's part of what made it so easy to take to the genre. Because I like, it's like, okay, I'll read these ten. Yeah. 
And then you start to get your foothold a little bit. And um, for those of you, that list is now much larger. Yes. And you can find it on my website. It's a great it's list. net slash recommended. Mm-hmm. Past tense, recommended. And a great collection um, and development tool. Librarian. And it's 160 or something books long now. And I add to it every week. All because genres, I read a book every day. All try. genres, all everything. Yeah, yeah. across the board. It's I try, straight. and if there's anything, for those of you who are readers, if there's anything that you feel is missing from that list, like, mm-hmm. please let me know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will either add to it, or it's actually a great way for me to find the book that I'm going to read next. Yeah. Then I just go looking and I read them for you. Especially for self-published books where I feel like, especially as more voices are coming into yeah. romance, many are coming through self-publishing or getting their start through self-publishing, um, which is can be hard to parse through. It's sure. just like the, the volume is even greater than the volume of traditional and there, books. But I feel like you find a lot of great stuff. I do. I mean, I... I I mean, I read I read a book a day, yeah. Um, and so I try and I try really hard to make that list as diverse as possible. Mm-hmm. So the only the only time that I don't sort of switch it up every every day is um, when I find a new author and then I become obsessed. And yeah. I'll, as you've all done, read you read know, the whole eighteen thing. books by Cressley Cole. Yep. Um, which I highly recommend. That was the best two weeks of my life. <laughs> and um, but the uh, you know I think that for um, I think for self-published and indie authors especially, it's also about, dis- it's about discoverability. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, especially now that um, Romantic Times is closed, unfortunately, unfortunate. there just aren't great resources to figure out who's got new books coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great uh, website called Women of Color in Romance, which tracks them as they come out on release days or release weeks. Um, but leading in, it's tif- it's tough to find. Also a good collection development tool. Yeah. Librarians. There are, yes. She's on Twitter. Um, it's run by a woman named Rebecca Weatherspoon, and she's on Twitter mm-hmm. at, at WOC in Romance. Mm-hmm. I think the in is there. It might not be, but it might be. But you'll find it. Women mm-hmm. of Color in Romance. Do you see any other trends sort of blossoming coming up, or things? Are there things you'd like to see in romance? Um, I think we're going to start seeing more sci-fi romance. Ooh, that would um, be great. We still have we have sci-fi romance, mm-hmm. but it's a tiny subsection of the genre, and I think we'll start to see more. Um, I think we're also um, somebody not long ago, actually a mutual friend of ours, Jen Northington, <laughs> used the term uh, romanticy with me Ooh, a few like months it. ago, which is fantasy romance. Um, there are, again, are a few, Amanda Boucher writes a great fantasy series. Um, the, her fire series, the first one is called A Promise of Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fantasy set. And there are a few other fantasy set um, romances. Carolyn Sparks is writing a fantasy set series. Um, right now, but I think we're we're going to start seeing more um, mashups, and that's what I really want to see. That would be awesome. Um, you know, things that are like Game of Thrones meets romance, mm. which seems impossible, but surely someone brilliant is out there. I think that's to me one of the real joys of romance is you know the person has to follow these very strict rules. Yeah. Well, it's only the two rules, I guess, but they're quite strict. Um, <laughs> and um, very different, two very different rules from every other genre, including literary fiction, which is, of course, its own genre. Right, um, right. And that, to me, it's like, oh, it's almost the same joy I get out of formalist poetry, where it's like, well, I know you have to do it in 16 right. lines. How are you going to do it? Yeah. And so it's exciting to me to think about people sort of challenging themselves in that way. Sure. I'd also love, you know, I've seen more contemporaries where the happy ending is not a wedding. Right. That's called happy for now. And I love it. 
And yeah. it's interesting. That's a, that is hard to pull off. Or more more queer romance that's historical. Yep. Which is again like if you want to be in any way historically accurate, very hard to pull off. But it's been a real joy to see authors for the most part tackling this and yeah. and really had being very successful and finding a great way to sure get a new story out. There. I mean, and there's no doubt that there's conflict in the sort of setup of a story sure, like that. Yeah, but I'm yeah, thinking yeah. about um, Cat Sebastian's oh, most recent, which is called Unmasked. Unmasking the Marquis? Unmasked by the Marquis. Sorry, I'm trying to think of the storyline. So it must be by the Is Marquis. Is that how you say that word? Marquis. I've, I've been saying Marquess for years. It's not a I word you, you really say, say it how I, 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 You would know I'll better than me. It. Yeah, no. Um, in, it's not a word you say out loud very frequently. It's Marquess. So. Marquess, okay. Maybe in American pronunciation it's Marquess, no, but Marquess nice to learn doesn't something. have it. And then it's in French, yeah, it's Marquis, obviously. Right. And now we've done that. That's, so <laughs> the... Um, hey, but you got to learn something every day. What I loved about that, so the conceit of that book is um, the heroine is um, non-binary. So, so, and presents as, and is living in disguise. It's a twisted, for those of you who are romance lovers, it's a twist on the trope, on the heroine in pants trope. Mm -hmm. um, but in this particular case, she's, she's non-binary. Um, she lives as, uh, she uses the pronoun she, and she lit, but she dresses as a man and presents as a man. And she's, that is, that is her comfort is, mm -hmm. is presenting as a man. Um, and she falls in love with a Marquis. And a Marquis needs a Marchioness, mm -hmm. right? Like you, there, another word I didn't know how to say until just um, Well, <laughs> you're welcome. This is great. <laughs> and, and, but I think what's fast, so of course that's part of the con, the conflict is, you know, how is this going to resolve? But Kat resolves it so perfectly. She does such a And so job. effortlessly. Her male, that, male historical's the same way, where you're like, how yeah. are you going to pull this off? And she always does. And it's beautifully done. Mm -hmm. And it and it just reminds us that we spend so much time, especially in historical readers and writers, spend so much time saying, oh, but the law, oh, but the history, oh, but, you know, right. would that really have happened? And I think um, what we forget is that, of course, it would have happened. Sure. You know, of course, people fell in love. Of course... Um, people fell in love with people who it was illegal to fall in love with, and they made it work. Mm -hmm. And Kat makes it work every time mm -hmm. in such a beautiful, like, honest, delicious way. Yeah. So I think if you're, if you're thinking of writing historical about a kind of unconventional match, um, read every Cat Sebastian book, mm -hmm. and then you'll see that it can be done perfectly. Yeah. yeah. It just takes a little, I mean, it must have happened. Had Probably to. Wasn't I mean, always of happy, course it yeah. happened. I mean, and we know this also from history. There's, yeah, um, it did happen. I mean, there are. I have seen it in paintings. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a novelist who I love. Not a romance novelist, but we won't hold it against him. His name's Nick Harkaway, also mm -hmm. British. And I saw him speak in the fall, and he said a sentence that's really resonated with me. He said, "I, I fear, as humans, we have lost the wind conditions for a better world." And that, like, our, one of our real challenges as a species is we've gotten so obsessed with can you do things and how much they cost and, like, that we've stopped dreaming. Like, what would it... And this idea came out of he was speaking to astronauts. So he stopped thinking about, like, what would it be like to go to Mars? What would we mm -hmm. want it to feel like? What would we expect to find? What would it be like to be that person? And just been like, how, how much is it going to cost? And, and when do we expect to do it? And what experiments are we going to run? And I that, weirdly, to me, applies a lot to romance novels, where they do, they offer you the wind conditions to a better world, where it's mm -hmm. like, and maybe in a, sometimes in a simplified way, but it's like, these things could happen. You don't need to believe right. that 
of course people fall in love. A funny thing I found with the wedding is how many people shared their own family histories. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah. Um, from all different backgrounds, people were like, actually, this reminds me, if you think this kind of love can't happen, like, this reminds me of this story in my family. Sure. Um, and so people see it all the time in their real lives, but can't. It's hard to grant that it could happen to people you don't know, I suppose. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Do you get a lot of people sharing love stories with you? Oh, When absolutely. you write a romance novel? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people want to talk. You know, one of the things about love is that it feels very ubiquitous, right? It's mm -hmm. in, it's, it's everywhere around us in the world. Um, and, it, you know, we use it to do all sorts of things. We use it to sell car insurance and Tic Tacs and, right. you know, clothing. But we also use it to represent, I mean, we use it to represent sort of a long history of human nature, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and obviously not everybody has experienced, you know, romantic love. But love is, is part of our lives. And whether or not we're experiencing or not, we're surrounded by it. Right. Um, and so I think... It is a thing where everyone has a story to tell. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's heartbreak, and sometimes it's not. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's you know disinterest, and sometimes it's not. But um, when they hear that you're a romance novelist, you get a lot of, oh, let me tell you my story. That's kind of um, nice. Which is really lovely. It must be a lovely way to meet new people. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lovely conversation to have. Yeah. Um, I'm the first person to ask like how someone's met their partner, because mm -hmm. it feels to me like that meeting is where all the magic is. So mm -hmm. That's really lovely. Yeah. Um, what other books would you recommend to people? Since you've you've said a lot of like authors and titles I know, for I mean, this whole thing, off but the cuff. if there's are there other new releases people should uh, out and get? Okay, let me think. I just two days ago finished Naima Simone's scoring off the field. Um, Naima writes she's the it's the first I think it's the first might be the second in a football series. It's the first one I read, Ooh. which is why for me it's a first. Um, it's Friends to Lovers, which I think is really hard to pull off. Some people love Friends to Lovers. Mm -hmm. I personally do not love Friends to Lovers, <gasps> but this book works so well because I love unrequited love. And Wait, this is... Can I hold you right there? Please. I have a question related to that with tropes. Yes. Do you think people's favorite tropes tell them something about, tell you something about them as yes. a person. Yes. I think your favorite trope is basically your id. Whoa. Like, and so the books that... <laughs> so, could, that makes me a little... <laughs> minus, minus second chance romance. That's so awesome. That and that's so good, nervous, though, because yeah. it's essentially what you're... That, a second chance romance is just about change, right? Mm -hmm. It's that fantasy. It's really common fantasy for romance readers. It's a common fantasy for you know people in general. It's why we love a bad boy, right? Mm -hmm. Because we love the man. It's why we love a prince story, right? So we love the man who's willing to sort of like sacrifice his whole backstory, like his whole identity for you, for you, right? Um, and that's and in second chances, we've actually seen the failure, and he the change has to be on the page, very clearly done. I think there's such an astrology thing here. <laughs> I, we, that would be fun. We the doctor is in. We guys. should we should like assign for each astrological sign like their two or three favorite tropes. Yeah, I bet maybe. you could probably I bet do you that. could do it. Yeah. But I do think, yeah. do we have a question? Oh. Well, I was just going to say, we we ha I know, it's so hard because it's such a I'll leave you with but your favorite trope is your id. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. We have one last question. Yeah, what yeah. are you working on right now? Oh. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm working on um, book two of the, uh, of the Bare Knuckle Bastards, which I think it's public now that the title is Brazen and the Beast. Um, and Very it's nice. about the second brother. Um, beast. Subtle too. Also subtle. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll tell you, uh, and you've, you've not met the heroine if you've read this book. Oh, um, okay. But, um, but we did meet the hero. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a rivalry book. So think like Ooh. The Hating Game, but historical. Set in Covent Garden. Is this going to be a quartet, a trilogy? It's a trilogy okay. so far. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you're gonna be like Madeline Lingle. You never know. Like you know, every time, like every ten years, they decide Madeline Lingle. J.K. Rowling. Oh, it's a trilogy. Oh no, it's a quartet. Oh no, it's a quartet. Oh, okay, sure, whatever you want. Well, I I mean, I've written a quartet, and by the end of the four books, I knew what the fourth book was for so long that finally, when I wrote it, I was like, I'm so tired of writing in this world because you're done. I'm fully done, but I'm I always leave the door open for to go back. Always go back. People love that. Yeah. And it's fun to populate the books. You will see all the scoundrels will be in these books. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see the bar from the Day of the Duchess, the tavern from mm-hmm. the Day of the Duchess, which is in Covent Garden. Um, yeah. Cool. We're so excited. Yeah. Thank sure you all so thank much. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. This is great. Thank be you. Be sure to check out Wicked in the Wallflower out in June. This has been a conversation between author Sarah McLean and librarian Stephanie Anderson. Thank you, guys.